This episode of Sundays with Kate is sponsored by Payoff.com. You've tried balance transfers and budgeting, but high interest rates and unrelenting bill cycles make it impossible to get out of credit card debt on your own. Instead of another new saving technique, you need a clear pass out of debt, and that's what a payoff loan can do. A payoff loan is a personal loan backed by member-centric credit unions designed to help you pay off your credit cards. With rates as low as 5.99% and loan amounts up to $35,000 with no hidden fees and personal customer service support from Payoff to help you reach your financial goals. Some of the benefits of a Payoff loan may also include potential credit score boost, one monthly payment, and savings from lower interest rates. Go to payoff.com/sundayswithkate to learn more. Checking loan rates won't affect your credit score. Try something new. Pay off your credit card debt with Payoff. NMLS ID number 1396805. Not all applicants may qualify. Loans only available within the United States. Loan is not available in all states. Payoff works with lending partners who originate the loans. Additional terms, conditions and eligibility requirements may apply. More information is available at payoff.com/sundayswithkate. What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh, I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica, meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Murtada Elfadli. Welcome to Sundays with Kate. This is your host, Murtada Elfadli. This is the podcast where each week we choose a Kate Blanchett film and discuss it. And for the last few weeks, we have been reviewing and recapping the FX on Hulu show, Mrs. America, because Kate went to TV. But let's take a break from Mrs. America for a week. We will be back next week with recaps and reviews of the last two episodes of the show. But in the meantime, we're going to go back to 2011 and talk about Joe Wright's Hannah. And my guest is Gavin Nevis. Welcome back, Gavin. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. You were a guest on the podcast when we talked about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And that episode is available if you guys are interested to listen to it. But we're here to talk about another Kate Blanchett villain. So this is Hannah from 2011. Heller is a rogue asset. I propose we go in and pull him out. I want to speak to Marissa Vigla. Tell her I'll be there tonight. We need to keep this contained, gentlemen. I worked with this man. He knows things I don't think he want to know. I need you to do things my agency will not let me do. Some very bad men are looking for her, and I need to find her. I want to protect her. Did she turn out as you hoped? Better. So Hannah was released in 2011. Hannah is about this girl. She's 16 years old. She is raised by her father in up north somewhere that's very cold. Um, and basically is being taught survival yeah. tactics and to be an assassin and to hunt and gather. And But there is always this menace at the beginning. Like she is ready to go somewhere. And about 10, 12 minutes into the movie, we know that she's going to go back into the world that we live in. But she's going to be hunted by this wicked witch, which is played by Kate 
Uh, Marissa Wiegler is a CIA operative who's obsessed with finding and killing Hannah. Um, and so it becomes this cat and mouse thing, or maybe it's um, a hunter and a hunted. And they basically, for the rest of yeah. the movie, they exchange places. Who's the hunted? Who's the hunter? Who's going to win at the end is basically how it goes. And the dad is played by Eric Bana. Hannah is... Saoirse Ronan. And Gavin, when I wanted you to come back on the show and I gave you a list of movies, you jumped at Hannah. There's something I really like about uh, Hannah. It is a action movie, but it's not a traditional action movie. I mean, the, the lead is a young girl who has been genetically modified, mentally modified to be the perfect soldier, but removed from that environment. Um, and she's she's essentially out to it's interesting because she it's it's almost a revenge tale but it's not necessarily it doesn't begin as a revenge tale she just sort of wants to live her life and there's this complicated thing in the way of her living her life which is the fact that she is this experiment that was supposed to be destroyed years ago by Kate Blanchett's character and obviously like that's this is all a metaphor for growing up and, and the, the transition between childhood to adulthood. And the movie plays a lot with a fairy tale atmosphere. And I just think there's so many interesting ideas at play and they really gel in a way that maybe another filmmaker wouldn't have been able to get them to play with each other. It's funny because this was a film that the script was on the blacklist. It was circling Hollywood for a long time and Danny Boyle was attached to it and Alfonso Cuaron was attached to it or at least circling it. And then Joe Wright got involved. I think Joe Wright was, it was the perfect time. It caught him at a perfect moment in his career. I don't know. And it was at the time too, so out of his wheelhouse because he had directed what? Pride and Prejudice, Atonement, The Soloist. He hadn't done something a big swing like Anna Karenina yet um, mm-hmm. to really show that he, he has a lot of interesting ideas. And I think he made a lot of brilliant choices. And one of them obviously was casting Kate Blanchett yeah. as the villain. So the big reveal that is actually revealed at the end of the movie is that she was part of an experiment to basically engineer yes. the perfect soldier. So they found, they recruited um, Marissa Wiegler, Eric Bana, who was one of her agents. They were recruiting women at abortion clinic. One, one of the strengths of this movie, I have to say, is nonspecific. Like the, the scene where it flashes back to how Eric Bana got away with Hannah and Hannah's mother dying. And it's this long road and Melissa Wiegler herself only, no like soldiers, no like tactical team, no helicopters is the one who like stands on the road and shoots at them. And if this is really like a big CIA operation, I know it's hush hush, but she clearly has men that are working for her. Why go alone? Why yeah. why not bring like a whole <laughs> tactical SWAT team? But that's part of the fairy tale aspect of it. That it's just like just don't question it. It's pretty. Just yeah. watch it. <laughs> so since we revealed the big reveal, which is revealed at the very, very end, and to your point about the movie throughout is very non-specific. It's revealed in such an offhand way. She basically goes, sits at a computer and Googles yeah. the thing which is such a non, a very non-dramatic way for this big reveal to be revealed. And I was like, what? This is what's going to happen? I mean, I, I, think, I think specifically for this narrative, 
it works. I don't know if another another film, I think other films might have collapsed on her. And I think other films might have handled it in a much larger, you know, the dramatic music, the big close-ups. I think you're supposed to connect into Hannah's character more than you're really supposed to care about her plot. And I think that that's shown to you constantly by the fact that they are being so nonspecific. Unlike a lot of other action movies, which fill in sort of stories more with with flashbacks or long exposition scenes, what you get in this film is you get these kind of minor character scenes. There's a really beautiful scene where she has dinner with the family of a girl she just met. And it's just, you get to know so much about this family and you know, like nothing good's going to happen to this family. Why do I need to know about them? But it's so well handled <laughs> that I didn't yeah. I didn't care. I didn't care that I was spending more time with this mundane hippie-ish traveling family than I was learning about the specifics of her her CIA like growing up and you know, maybe maybe there's test tubes involved and maybe there's trainers and classrooms full of kids. And I'm I'm happy I didn't learn the specifics of that. I agree with you. I like less is more. I don't want movies to over explain to me. I don't want everything explained. But I just thought this was just extra offhand. <laughs> Literally sitting down to a computer and finding out the whole thing. It's like the anti-born. You know, there's not like a, a 12 minute scene where Edward Norton explains to you exactly how she was created. So the big motif in this movie is that it's a fairy tale. So there are all these allusions to fairy tales from the very beginning. Like um, they show us Hannah in like the first 10 minutes of the films reading the Grimm's tales. Marissa, the character played by Kate, is costumed and styled like the Wicked Witch of the West, all always in green with the sparkling red hair. A lot of the characters <laughs> talk in, in fairy tales. There is like references of like, are you going to grandma's house? You know, little red riding yeah. hood. Um, one of the characters is called Mr. Grimm. And then in the finale, Kate is shown literally coming out of a big, bad wolf's mouth. I, I think the biggest thing, and you've definitely hit the nail on the head, is that it is not subtle um, <laughs> and by any means. Uh, and but I kind, but once again, I kind of like that. This movie is very much uh, everything is is on its sleeve. You know, it, it presents itself to you in the way I always dug fairy tales, and I've always loved the idea of the protagonist who has to whether it's for good or bad, figure out their their place in life. People have a tendency to forget that um, fairy tales are dark. And almost all the reviews are like, oh, this is like a dark fairy tale. And it's like, no, Disney wants you to forget that fairy tales are dark. <laughs> I mean, the, the original Snow White, the witch comes to her three times and, and binds her and stabs her with a comb. And the original Cinderella, um, the stepsisters cut off their parts of their feet to try and fit into the... slippers so so there's a darkness already to fairy tales and i and i like that this doesn't hide that aspect of it it's upsetting there are people who are going to die there are people you like who are going to die some of them are going to die to teach Hannah a lesson some of them are going to die just because people die and that's and i think that's an interesting dichotomy obviously there's a way to do this that's more subtle that she doesn't end up in a theme park that seems to be based off Grimm's fairy tales or or that you know she's not reading at the beginning but i but i like that through line because it's a constant reminder that maybe what you're watching isn't necessarily reality but it is there to teach you the same sort of lessons that fairy tales often do. You know, subtle is not always the best thing. Sometimes you need a message hammered in. And Hannah is definitely saying loudly, 
this is a fairy tale and noticing all these things and trying to put it together. It's an easy puzzle and easy puzzles are enjoyable. And one of the interesting thing too is obviously most fairy tales have a protagonist who ends up being a damsel in distress. And one of the great things about Hannah is she she doesn't have that ability to be a damsel in distress. She is her own savior. She's her own prince. Yeah, obviously her father who trained her is, is a person that is also lethal and could protect her, but he's not there for her for most of this film. She ends up being a protector more often for other people than she does end up falling into traps that would harm her. So is Hannah Snow White? Because there are allusions to Red um, Riding Hood, but I think the one that maybe fits, especially with the the blonde hair that they have given her, is Snow White. Yeah, I mean, well, she's very, she's so fair in this movie. And Joe Wright, actually, right before they began shooting, had her eyebrows dyed white, so she'd look like a wolf. But I agree, it is it is sort of that, you know, Snow White, like, cast out of her kingdom, goes into the wilderness, uh, finds the people that will help her in the end and destroys, you know, her, her wicked, the wicked queen. The way Kate plays Marissa Wiegler is almost there. There's an envy there that mm. I think also plays into the fairy tale aspect. I'm not really sure. And I would love to ask her what that envy is, or if I'm just reading too much into it, because I don't necessarily think it's youth, but I wonder if it's partially freedom because Marissa Wiegler is very structured, very, you know, the first time you see her in the film, she's brushing her teeth. She has these routines and Hannah doesn't have any of this. She's been living on the run. She's, you know, so she doesn't have this structure that Marissa Wiegler has, has made her life out. There's a great scene towards the end where she, not to spoil too much, but she's captured somebody close to uh, Hannah and she's interrogating them. And once again, you know, nothing good's going to happen to this person. And she just stops and says, you know, it stays like this. I really hate my job. And so much of her life has become her job that I do think that part of the thing that she's tapped into for Hannah is Hannah's got to have this freedom. And for the 16 years that she's had freedom, it has enslaved Marissa Wiegler into finding and destroying her. I mean, I like what you're saying about freedom, but I think also um, the way that Marissa is presented, you alluded to the teeth. And the first time we see her is she wakes up and she has this crazy big routine about cleaning her teeth. And, you know, her teeth are perfect and they're white and they're pearly. And so she is presented as this sort of very strict perfectionist. And even this program that she ran is about basically creating the perfect soldier. And maybe there is the jealousy comes from like, maybe she wants to be as as perfect a human as she could. And she thinks that maybe Hannah is that perfect um, human. And that's why right. she is jealous a little bit. That's a good read as well. Too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also a little bit of maternal pride because in the scene where she goes to Tom Hollander, who is one of her henchmen, and she's like, go find the girl and and all of that. And he um, he asks her, did she turn out as good as you hoped she would? And she says very, you know, with a lot of pride, better. So there's a lot of motifs there. She's the stepmom. She's the witch. She's the 
perfect soldier. She's a lot of things. But one thing that definitely the <laughs> costumes are telling us is that she's the Wicked Witch of the West. I love all the greens. And they put her, they made her look very, um, very elegant in these pencil thin skirts that are always green. And they gave her this cashmere coat and the green gloves. And I went into a little bit of a, uh, just Googling about her costumes. And it turns out that they were designed by Giorgio Armani himself, who obviously Kate is a global ambassador for him. So it's a long relationship and it does look like a very expensive, all that she wears like very expensive Armani suits. I mean, costuming is such a huge part of movies and I love what it can tell about a character, what it, it might not say about a character too. And what's cool about the article that you've included and obviously podcast famously, not a visual medium is that there is a great sketch of mm-hmm. this outfit, the, the green coat and yeah. And like, I, I, I love, I always find jobs, the creative jobs on, on film sets so fascinating and, and just the, the peek into the psyche that they have to evoke. Plus, I mean, obviously, Giorgio Armani. Like, <laughs> like, and as we, we said, you were a guest on my podcast, Mixed Reviews, and we talked about um, Kate Blanchett's ability to wear anything. And it just, yeah, you can just, she looks amazing. It's, it's, it's yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know, but it, like for as evil as she is, she's, you know, she is that the wicked queen, the, the vain, beautiful, fairest of them all. Yeah. She looks amazing. And we will link to the, to that article so people can see the sketch. I want to talk a little bit about the scenes, some of the scenes that I like, I think when, um, so Sersha or Hannah goes and basically she wants them to catch her. So they catch her, they put her in this CIA facility that's somewhere in Morocco underground and she escapes that whole escape scene. It's about, it's a 10 minute sequence. She, she proves what a perfect soldier she is. I thought that was the most exciting sequence in the whole movie. I'm not into like a lot of violence. I don't like guns, all these things. This, <laughs> this scene has a lot of guns and a lot of murder, but I still enjoyed it. Well, and I think part of too, what makes it really great is it's, it's extremely well choreographed and, and it's extremely well edited. I mean, clearly it was very well planned in production, but the post-production is, is really brilliant. And it, you know, there's a very modern sort of way to shoot action that I, I don't particularly love that is very quick and very close up. And it, what it does is it hides the imperfection in the action. And what's great about Hannah is more often than not, it avoids that. But when it does do that, it's doing it in such a stylistic way that it doesn't feel like an afterthought. It doesn't feel like a Batman begins. No one can fight Batman because he's in a rubber suit sort of way. <laughs> it feels more, it feels more like it's, it's meant, you know, to be there to, to show the sort of frantic pace, especially of this specific scene. And I, and I really love the way it looks. I'm a, I'm a post-production person anyway. So I'm constantly noticing stuff like that. And I just think it's so, expertly edited that specific i mean the the movie itself is great but that specific passage of the movie is is so well done and i've i've rewatched that scene itself before just to to analyze it from top to bottom and you're right it, it's violent but it's that it's not incredibly violent there there you know there's m- many more films that would have went for like bullet wounds and and actually you know like like hearing yeah. the loud cracks when the next snap and and this movie doesn't necessarily do that even though it is 
a, a very violent scene. Another great scene is also the subway fight between Eric Bana and the goons that uh, Marissa sends to catch him. And this is one of those scenes that is just, it's, choreo- it's a choreographed fight. So he's against about six people, I think, six goons. And it's just like a ballet. It's beautiful. They're all dancing. They're all fighting. It's so well done. And it's when you know that the stunt people did excellent work because it's so exciting to watch. Yes. And what's great about that, too, is it stands in very stark contrast to the previous scene we were talking about, because it is a 10, I think it's a almost 10 minute unbroken take. And it was shot for under 10 times, which is very impressive, because people could have screwed up in many, many ways. And it's really beautiful, because it, it starts with him getting off a plane and then going down into this subway area it's you're right it's just so excellently choreographed and on top of that clearly couldn't use a stunt double because it's an unbroken take so it's mm-hmm. just eric banna himself and that's always mm-hmm. impressive now that i'm saying you know every af- actor has to be tom cruise hanging off a building <laughs> but it's cool that he could you know manage that yeah i like the weirdness of this film too they there's so many weird things to it which i guess also plays back to the fairy tale elements but a very weird scene is when um hannah is in morocco and she she gets a room in a hotel for the night and then she's afraid of all the appliances and this is where it's just it's it becomes a horror movie for like three or four minutes basically everything turns on and it's as if and they're coming at her and she has to escape the room i thought it was weird i thought that scene was very funny and i just liked it show you that maybe Hannah is is just not used to this world that she's in right now. But it was just, I love the weirdness of it just in the middle of the movie. Well, if you want to stick with the fairy tale comparison, and even though earlier I was like, forget about Disney, a good parallel to that scene would be the scene in Snow White where she first runs into the forest when the hunter tells her to run into the forest. And it's a world unlike anything she's ever seen. And all she sees is all these dark eyes, you know, and the, and the, the animals in the forest and she collapses and then you realize like oh it's just like deer and bunnies it's nothing that can harm her and that's very much what's happening in the scene and i like the fact that you you pointed out that it is almost like these things are ready to attack her it does the the appliances do feel very anthropomorphized uh, if you will during that exact moment because she that's how she feels she you know she her exposure to electricity is uh, an encyclopedia article and so when the when the man's introducing her to all the things around the room he's just like oh she's like oh yeah i know what electricity is but she doesn't she doesn't really <laughs> not in a practical way and yeah. i i also I, again i also really love that scene too because it does it it adds to that fish out of water fairy tale element Saoirse Ronan is the lead here, and this movie comes four years after Atonement. Which is another Joe Wright movie, but she's still in that in-between. So she's not yet an adult, but she's not exactly a child actor. But I think for that, this role fit her to a T, and she's great in it. And she has that otherworldly sort of quality that also reminds me of Kate herself. I I think that's an excellent comparison. I mean, obviously, like, their cast, to evoke each other um, in an interesting, uh, w- weird way. But it is it is kind of funny that you you bring up the the atonement connection for Sersha because one of the things about atonement, her character specifically, is that she's always playing above her age. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I love in Hannah is, and it, I'm glad they kind of avoid it 
but she she has like a childlike wonder but it's not so much she's not she's not an idiot and that's a lot of these films have a bad tendency when you when you introduce a fish out of water a lot of them have like oh they see a car and they're like what sort of beast is this you know and she doesn't have that like she knows what a car is she's just never seen a practical application of one and mm-hmm. and so i i like the fact i like when when they're a film is conscious enough to to play into the intellectual strengths of their characters but it is cool to watch her sort of feel around in this world for the first time and really experience an environment that she had not experienced when she was living up north with Eric Bana and I feel like her character in Atonement would have the complete opposite reaction where even if she didn't know what the environment was, she would pretend she knew what the environment was. Oh yeah. No. Oh, the desert. Yes, of course. You know, that sort of, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and I like the, the direct opposition of that, that Joe Wright saw her ability to play above her years and was like, okay, now I'm going to take you as somebody who's significantly older, but I have you play a lot younger in your years, but keep mm. you on a very similar intelligence level, you know, keep your confidence, keep the, your ability to react to situations, but you're just going to react to them on the opposite side of the spectrum. And, wow. and I, I do like, I think it's, I think it's an interesting thing. Plus I love when directors find actors they like working with. I would love to see him work with her again. Atonement remains my favorite. Joe Wright is a director I like for the most part. I love Atonement. I really like Pride and Prejudice. I know it was accused of not being faithful to Jane Austen by being too romantic with the extremely happy ending, but I think it's great. I love his adaptation of Anna Karenina. He brought theatricality to the story in a way that no other director has done before. Oh, well, that's that's my personal favorite. I also, I, I like Atonement a lot, and I really do like his project watching fireworks whatever it's fine whatever i don't care uh i will take that you know we we have plenty of other versions of pride and prejudice where they're not in jammies at the end so it's fine <laughs> if we have one where they are but uh but i yeah i love anna Karenina. um i read anna Karenina in high school and one of the things that i it's such a, I think it's such an interesting book. And I think what he's managed to accomplish with his version is to, to really, I mean, once again, it's not subtle. Uh, all the city stuff occurs, you know, in a theater and it's all about the, the fakeness of society and, and the falseness of that. And, but I think he was able to capture in the character of Anna Karenina what a lot of other adaptations don't, which, you know, is that sort of, that struggle, but also she's not the world's best person. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like I get a lot of crap when I say that to people, but she's, she's also like, she creates a lot of her own predicament. And I, I feel like this was one of the films where it really, really played on that. But I don't know. I th- I, th- I thought that adaptation was, was interesting for being so, for being so beautiful and so theatrical and so big on its, exterior i thought the stuff that was personal and small was so well directed and and so interesting and yeah i i i love anna Karenina, and i love once again i also love a big swing and it's so funny to watch him 
hit that one out of the park in my opinion and then watch him do something like pan which is like a big swing and it's just the the worst <laughs> like <laughs> the worst example of what you what can happen um when you're you know i haven't seen pan i don't think i have any plans to see it but what you're i like okay. about it- <laughs> <laughs> i think you're okay uh, one thing i liked about Anna, as about joe wright's version of anna karenina it that it was the version that was most sympathetic to Karenin, who is always presented as this villain, somebody who's just, you know, who basically deserves that Anna leaves him and falls in love with Vronsky. Um, I think even in the book itself, or at least in the version that I read of it years and years ago. So this was more... Which is so funny because I've never... I never got that from the book, and I—that's one of the reasons why I like. I like that the the edges don't feel as. I mean, when you're adapting something, obviously you you sort of have to move everybody a little more, more arch because you have a limited amount of time. And Anna Karenina is not a small book, and so I think the the impulse is to go more towards the reverse of what, whatever the reverse of sanding off the edges is. You know, making the edges mm-hmm. more pronounced. And one of the things I loved about this version is it was able to present the characters in the way that, that I had experienced them when I, when I read the book. So like, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I do think Cronin's uh, presented in, in a more sympathetic way and, and beautifully played, but, but it's interesting that you found, even in the book, you found him slightly more villainous or slightly more guilty just, of, of, yeah. Yeah. It could be just be me. Cause like, you know, Anna herself is a tragic heroine because of the yeah. end and because of all that happens to her and who, you know, yeah. she's like, girl the, is a mess. Yes. So, so, <laughs> and they, they are on opposing sides, let's say. So that's why at least when I read it, I was always like in Anna's count hundred percent, but I felt with this movie is that it presented them as equals or more as like, yeah, we can see his point of view too. Atonement remains my favorite Joe Wright, but Anna Karenina is right there. It's a great movie. He's a good director. I didn't care for Darkest Hour, but he I'm is. excited to see The Woman in the Window if that one ever comes out. <laughs> I am excited to see The Woman in the Window uh, only because I love when a director I like that has a very specific style does trash. And like, that's, that's <laughs> like, it's, I saw the trailer for that and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm in. What? Yeah. Like, really? Okay. But yeah, the, it's so funny that you bring up The Darkest Hour. The Darkest Hour and The Soloist, his two, like, arguably maybe most mainstream dramas are the two that I've not seen. Um, and I'm just like, I'm good. I think, I think I'll be good for the yeah. moment. I mean, The Darkest Hour works. It's fine. But, you know, it's, <laughs> not, it's not Anna Karenina or Pride and Prejudice or even Hannah, which I like a lot. look at the cast quickly so i really love jessica barden it's very delicious as hannah's um friend um the young the teenage daughter of the family that she hooks up with in morocco she's so funny every time she opens her mouth i just laugh that was such good good performance i think she's really good at disarming the audience and that's that's one of the things that's like interesting about her character because Oftentimes when you're watching an action film and a character that's sort of comedic is introduced, it's it's very like, ugh, what? Why? <laughs> like, don't let yeah. that person talk again. But like, I was excited to hear her talk again because I was just like, what's going to come out of her mouth next? So yeah, no, I agree. She's, she's, she's a bit of a breath of fresh 
in the proceedings. Yeah, totally. Loved her. Um, and then as Hannah's mom, you know, like a blink and you'll miss her is Phantom Threads Vicky Creeps. Apparently it took her six years to go from Hannah to starring in a movie. <laughs> I did the thing where when I was rewatching it, I was like, who is this? I was like, this is clearly somebody, even though it's a small role. And then I Googled it and I was like, like, really? But, you know, everybody's everybody's got to start somewhere. <laughs> it's a good start. It's a good movie. What do you think ever happened to Eric Bana? He was on a trajectory to be this major star, like <laughs> Troy, then Munich. I know the Hulk was there and that probably didn't help. But Munich was after the Hulk. So and then he did this. And it I think was. this is the last kind of sort of A-list movie he's been in. Like, I looked at his IMDb and he's playing supporting roles in Mark Wahlberg movies. What is going on, Eric Bana? That I genuinely don't know. And he's an actor I actually like. And uh, so I don't like, uh, you know, there's plenty of actors who maybe don't deserve the career they have. I don't think he did. I don't think he did anything wrong to, to, to not have, you know, like right before Hannah, he had the time traveler's wife. And, you know, so it, he was you know, the villain in Star Trek. But that that was more of a character role. I mean, I guess he did TV uh, this past year. He did the Dirty John miniseries. But even that. It's just like mm-hmm. Billy Eric Bana. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, uh, why he, why he didn't hit, and why he's sort of been relegated to the Clive Owen sphere of the actors' worlds now. But he, he deserves a little bit better. Oh, for Christ's sake, Lewis! Hello, Marissa. I heard you were dead. Well, did your little girl tell you that? Even though he knows all about what are you listening to? Self help. He looks. Are you in need of help? Oh, it's good to hear you. I didn't imagine we'd have the chance to talk. You don't have her, do you? You're not that good. Oh, Eric, you're such a flirt. Well, you were a good agent, Eric. Sad to see you go down. What did I miss? I couldn't do it anymore. The things we did. I- I'm sorry with Johanna. With all of them. With Hannah. So why come back now? I asked you a question, Eric. Eric, are you still there? So let's let's go back to talking about Kate a little bit. So when Kate plays these villains, like in Cinderella, or we talked about in the Indiana Jones movie, or in Thor, it always is a, is a stylized performance. It she gives the character, you know, body movements, a specific deliberate accent. Um, she works with the costume designer to create a whole look. And this, I thought, it was maybe the most subtle of all her big villains. She she does have a few ticks, you know. She has a southern accent, and of course, she is like yeah. we talked earlier, dressed in the green with the red hair, but. Beyond that, I found it a very controlled performance and it sort of fits into this movie because you don't, like the movie is already stylized enough with all the fairy tale motifs and illusions with all the story that is kind of a fable. So it doesn't need somebody to give us even more. So I thought that the performance really fit into the realm of this movie. Yeah, and and I think, you know, she's not reaching at any point it's not but you know we we have discussed before she loves an accent (laughs) she She you know so so, uh but 
I, I to me that's the quir- that's like the quirkiest bit of her character. Obviously, you know everything else. She's she's got this cold exterior and this very. Uh, we mentioned her routines, so she's got a very polished exterior too. And it is it is funny because I always whenever there's a character like that in a film, and then but they have like a definitive accent. I'm always like wouldn't wouldn't they consider that a flaw wouldn't they have worked to like beat that accent out of because i know people who are not perfectionists who have worked to remove like their accent because they're they're like weirdly self-conscious about it which i think is ridiculous because i it's a nice thing Mm -hmm. for people to have Uh, i have a very generic midwestern accent even though i'm not from the midwest so explain that one so I've always like for for the, for Marissa Wiegler like why why would she keep the Southern accent why would she have it I I don't know it's an interesting <laughs> it's a choice um, it is a choice she's certainly and making it throughout the film she is and you know she sticks to the accent she's very good at accents because I think it fits also in the fairy tale like you have to make her distinctive because she's not like all the other CIA agents or CIA operatives and so I think it's just another thing to make her stand out because she's in very sterile environment her look is very severe she's very severe and so this gives her an extra edge something to sort of disarm people because you don't expect that accent to be coming out of the visual person that she's presenting not that you know people with southern accent can't be severe or cold or whatever but it's just oh no no but and and maybe that and maybe that's actually now that you've said that maybe that's the 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 reason she has it because i do i do wonder like where did she come from like is she from the (laughs) south is this something she's putting on and maybe it is to to create that to create that sort of disarming like Oh no, I'm a friendly person. I'm, you know, I'm, I wouldn't harm you. Like, look how warm and, and nice, you know, this welcoming, this accent is. And, um, which once again, you're right. People, Southern people can have be all sorts of things, but, (laughs) but I do think as, as Americans, um, we have a tendency to idealize sort of the the like politeness of the south even though it's not you know it's not always real politeness but uh so perhaps she's playing to that a bit more yeah i wanted to ask you one thing so one of the things what i was reading um reviews for this some reviews had a problem with the tom hollander character he's marissa's enforcer he's presented as very gay very queer he's he wears short shorts he has a sort of you can call it a gay accent or a gay way of talking. <laughs> um, and then, and so people, some people were thinking of him as problematic. I just thought it was a fun performance and a fun character. And, you know, gay people can be evil too. I didn't think of it as problematic at right. all. I thought it was a fun performance. What did you think? There's always, always ways to read anything as problematic. And I, and I, Often, uh, you know, I do, depending on... But this, I never had a problem with. It's funny because I... It's one of those things that I'd forgotten about the film. And maybe it's just because it had been a long time since I'd seen it. And, like, it is, a, it is a little... It's a little weird when she first goes into his club and there's the female-presenting entertainer. And he's like, oh, she has both male and female genitalia. And Marissa Riegler the first thing she says is like, you know, like, Oh, isn't she a little old for you? And that stuff worries me because it it feels like 
it presents like, oh, being queer is perverse and there's, mm. you know, perversion in it. And, but what, like you said, you know, gay people can be evil and it, it would suck if you couldn't present, you know, a queer person as <laughs> having nefarious notions because everybody has nefarious notions to yeah. some degree or another. His just happened to be off the, the charts. I, I don't know. I, I particularly like his performance in the film. I like that he he's a creep and, you know, he's constantly whistling the the theme for his character, the devils in the details. And But yeah, I, I did think, I did have a brief flash of like, is this problematic? And <laughs> and like I'll be honest, maybe I'm not the scholar to tell you it is or not. I think if it makes you if you makes you uncomfortable, maybe it is a little problematic. But for me, it didn't necessarily. But I do I do always worry. But even so, you have like a very brief moment of Hannah herself maybe having some experimental tendencies, and I I don't feel yes. like the movie casts a negative light on on those proceedings. So. You know, I I think you sort of have to to weigh, you know, what is presented stronger and what's presented worse. And I I, I will say for me personally, I I was not offended. But you know. I mean, a movie that has Kate Blanchett in green Armani suits was that yeah. red hair and those gloves <laughs> cannot not be a little bit in that queer. accent. And <laughs> that accent, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, she is putting on a show and like, listen, everybody else better show up to that show ready to perform. (laughs) She always puts on a show and this is another one. Absolutely. So this movie, this is like the wilderness years in Kate's cinematic career because she was busy with the Sydney Theatre Company. So between in 2008, when she did Benjamin Button in 2013, where she came back big time with Blue Jasmine, she basically made Hannah, Robin Hood and The Hobbit. And that was it. That was a dark, dark time. I did see some of her (laughs) theater work that came to New York, but just I remember that being a dark time, especially with Robin Hood. Like, at least this is a good movie. Robin Hood was just like, why this one? <laughs> yeah, so I've still yet to see Robin Hood. I I just know it only by reputation. I I do wonder why she picked the films that she I mean like Robin Hood, I guess you could say it's to work with Scott and she probably knew because it was such a big budget of film that it was going to make some money or hoped it was going to make some money. The Hobbit obviously like you yeah. know, she she can fly to New Zealand for a weekend and and shoot all of her scenes. But Hannah is something she clearly spent time on. And I'm I'm just curious as to if it just the script struck her fancy, if it just happened to line up with a break that she had from yeah. the administrative duties or the acting duties that she had for the theater. It's so good and I'm I'm glad she chose it. And I I can't I'm, imagine anybody else in this role which is funny because there's a hannah tv show now and i've basically just refused to watch it because i'm just like no thank you i think what you said earlier about schedules and break from her duties at the sydney theater company is exactly why she did those three movies they probably there's something about them she liked and then they were like oh i can do this in the and yes this is a big role and she had to do a lot of preparation but also she's not in it that much so i think she could have shot it in like two or three weeks where she was on a break from running the sydney theater company um, so we are positive on Hannah. It's a great showcase for Kate. It's a great showcase for Trisha Ronan. It's great for Eric Bana. And we love Joe Wright, right? Yeah. And and also, just real quick, uh, 
I cannot believe that this movie is an hour and 51 minutes because it is such a breeze and there's no time for it to drag. Once again, I mentioned it's action movie, but it's an unconventional action movie. And, and it has all these moments that really fill out these characters. So you think that it would slow down, but it never takes the time to slow down. It paces itself in such a great way that honestly, if you told me that this was like an 88 minute film, I'd be like, yeah, that's correct. That's right. (laughs) So. But let's talk about Hannah herself, Saoirse Ronan. So Saoirse Ronan is, has um, four or five Oscar nominations. She's only 25 and she's always being compared to Blanchett, I guess, because of this movie that they were in together. And sometimes she's being compared to Kate Winslet because of the amassing of the Oscar nominations at a very young age, which before Saoirse, the person who did that was Kate Winslet. And of course, the two Kates who came out at the same time in the late 90s um, have always been compared together or thought of as a pair for a long time until they distinguished themselves. In fact, in one of the articles that I read in preparation for this, it was a New York, New York Times Magazine interview that Blanchett gave around the time Hannah came out in 2011. And she says, and I quote, people are always saying they love me in Titanic, which is a funny thing because I don't think anybody says that anymore. I think they have both distinguished themselves <laughs> enough from like 2011 to 2020. But if I would, looking- I would love to, I would love to meet Kate Winslet and be like, I loved you in Lord of the Rings, <laughs> right? <laughs> like what? <laughs> but if if we're gonna say Saoirse Ronan, is she a Winslet or a Blanchett to you? It's it's a hard one, I, honestly. I think to parse in that way because I I feel like she goes more for. Um, Blanchetty roles, I'll be honest, mm-hmm. than she goes for Winslet-y roles, which is not um, a knock on it. I mean, I both are very accomplished actors and, and, and different. Ha- like have amazing careers. Yeah, very, very different. I do think Winslet tends to, to gravitate more towards dark um, and more often than not low budget which is not to say Kate Blanchett doesn't have her fair share of low budget films in her repertoire but I but she she seems to balance those out more you know for mm-hmm. every Lord of the Rings she does she'll do like two low budget films but I feel like for Kate Winslet for every Titanic she does you get every other movie in her career and I I feel like um Saoirse ends up more you know she she has her fair share of like Mary Queen of Scots in, yeah. in her career or um, you know Grand Budapest Hotel which I guess is not like a crazy super expensive movie but like a more mainstream like a movie you know is going to play all the big theaters and so I don't know I, I do th- I, I think she if you're comparing the two I definitely think she she's like the needle swings more towards the Blanchett um does she have the range? I, mm-hmm. I think so. I think so. But yeah, I just, I think, you know, I wanted to be controversial for a moment and ask that question. Yeah, I think she has the range and I think she is more of a Blanchett. And I think it's, to me, it's more of her presence on screen. Like I think Winslet it presents a more earthy, warmer presence on screen. And 
Ronan is more of this otherworldly sort of exceptional person um, that Blanchett plays and that, that sort of exceptional presence at all times yeah. that, that they, they both have. And that's why I think of her as a Blanchett and not a Winslet. I like that. She is, she is certainly more ethereal, definitely. Yes, absolutely. So let's, so Kate, we, we talked about that, how she played um, these villains. So there's Hannah, which we're talking about today. There's Indiana Jones, which Gavin and I have talked about before. And there's <laughs> Thor, which we also did an episode on with Joy Childs. And the last one is Cinderella. So Gavin, rank those four quickly on your favorite Kate from top to bottom. Those four, the performance, not the movie. Okay. Performance, not the movie. Um, well, I think, I mean, whew, this is tough. She's so delicious. At, and like, I'm not somebody who loves this movie as much as everybody else does, but she's so delicious in Thor The Dark World. Mm-hmm. So just like camp, like full on. If, if you had to say one performance was drag, like that's, that's the one. She's doing drag. And yeah. Thor, so that's probably my favorite. Then, like I kind, I kind of like her when she's campier to an extent. So yeah. let me finish off this list real quick, then, because okay. I think Cinderella's next for me because I re- I really love like her just drinking and just not caring and um, this uh, mm-hmm. Hannah. Uh, because I like how mannered she is and how different she is from all of our other villains. And then in the other spectrum of camp, Indiana Jones and Kingdom of Crystal Skull, <laughs> which I, I do, and we discussed it in, epi- in the episode, yeah. she's, there's something about that performance that's off, and it's not bad. She's just, like, doing something else. And mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody else in that movie is doing it, too. <laughs> Nobody so, like, is. <laughs> she's on this weird wavelength. And, yeah, exactly. And, it, and it's camp. It's certainly camp, but it's not certainly not the same type of camp that she's pulling in Thor or Cinderella. Okay. And then, so that's your fourth. So then Hannah comes in third. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Though I love her performance and, and I love this movie and I like Hannah better than I like Cinderella or Thor. So who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's about the performance. So for me, I'm going to rank Cinderella first because she is Joan Crawford times a hundred. The costumes are amazing. That just the whole thing in Cinderella is just a feast for the eyes. It's a performance you can gif for days. She gives us so many faces. I love all the faces she gives. So Cinderella is stop for me. I like Thor, but I do not actually think she's served by the fact that she is in the boring part of the movie, you know, where right. she's just sitting with Carl. Carl Urban in Osgard. So for that, I'm going to put Thor last uh, because okay, how do you cool. hire okay. Kate Blanchett and then not give her the yeah. interesting part in the movie? Um, I mean, Mar- Marvel Marvel has their villain problems. They just genuinely, for mo- the most part, never know what to do with them. And, you know, they cast these amazing people. And yeah, I can see it. Yeah. And actually, after you and I talked about Indiana Jones and we discussed that performance... I came to it just as I think I was, as I was editing our conversation, I got really excited about it, listening to us talking about it, which is <laughs> totally a terrible thing to say, but that's why it's second. Cause um, 
because I think she's doing a lot of things and it's not, doesn't all work. And the movie kind of also gives her a terrible death and there is all these things, but the performance itself is, there is a lot of it there. The voice is there. The accent is there. The, the severe body movements are there. There is a lot there. So it's second for me. And then I'll put Hannah third. Hannah's good, but I think there's not enough of her here. I wish there was a little, yes. just a little bit more of Marissa. So that's why it's third. So anyway, that's my four. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like that almost everything was different except for the placement of Hannah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, Hannah comes in third for both of us. I just, I genuinely recommend it. Once again, it's a very breezy watch. I think it could be easy to dismiss because it is so in your face with its metaphors, but I think that is just a vehicle for for the movie to present itself and the the core of the movie is a lot deeper than than the the easy oh it's fairy tale analysis and uh yeah so i i don't know i highly recommend it it's breezy won't take you much yes i agree with all what gavin has said and i also want to thank hannah for giving us a fantastic moment to promote hannah which came out during the oscars in 2011, Kate wore that famous Lilac Givenchy couture gown, went to the Oscars to present a makeup award, I think. And when the makeup for The Wolfman, which was one of the nominees, came on, she gave us that glorious gif of her saying right into the cameras at the Oscars, that's gross, which is something I use all the time. And I think a lot of people who are listening <laughs> use that gif all the time, too. So thank you, Hannah, for that moment. The oh. and that gown is that gown is absolutely to die for. Just just gorgeous. And like somehow both avant-garde and subtle, like understated, because the fabric part is just like draped. But then everything else about it's so beautiful. It looks like seashells. It looks like she's covered in sparkly barnacles, <laughs> which yes. is probably not doing it. <laughs> giving it credit but but i it's gorgeous look it up you'll love yeah. it we'll link to it it's one of her best red carpet moments of all time so thank you hannah and thank you gavin for coming on sundays with kate and before we go tell our listeners where they can find you well thank you so much first of all for having me back i love talking with you i think you're so smart and your analysis of things is so astute and i love i also love reading your work so i really appreciate you having me on uh you can find me online on twitter at at friendless mean or you can listen to me every other week on my film podcast the mixed reviews it is a podcast with me and my friend louis where we take a film subject such as a mini genre an actor or a director and we do a whole history and then we take the good and we take the bad and we give you a little wrap up. So give it a listen. It's fun. We're both uh, we're both pretty intelligent. I can't speak for myself, but Louie's pretty smart. So <laughs> I love the mixed yeah. reviews and I really and, enjoyed your last episode about Diane Keaton. It was a great, great, great time. Oh, thank you so much. I, lo- I loved doing that episode. And like she, we do, I have to do this like mental process of, when we finish an episode of like flush all the information because there is a ton this is why we can only do it every two weeks because there's so much information that louie and i both have to absorb and i sort of have to flush it all out to replace it with new information and so i i try not not to look back but when it came to her giving up diane keaton i was like i miss her i want want to watch more (laughs) but yeah 
So, yeah, listen to the mixed reviews. And you can find me on Twitter at me underscore says and find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Sundays with Kate. All our previous episodes of the podcast are available on sundayswithkate.com. We will be back to recap and review the last two episodes of Mrs. America. And until then, thank you for listening.